Hello listeners, welcome to Explore FI Canada, where we sit at the round table with Canadians and share their thoughts, ideas and personal journeys to financial independence. Thanks to Matt McKeever for sponsoring Explore FI Canada. Matt is a Canadian investor, CPA, entrepreneur, and real estate expert who achieved fire at age 31. Do us a favor and check out his YouTube channel by searching Matt McKeever or using the link in our show notes. All right, welcome all you lovely listeners to another episode of Explore FI Canada. Money Mechanic is with you and, of course, my co-host, Chrissy. Hello, my friend. How are you doing today? I have a giant smile on my face. I'm feeling good. How about you? Me too. Good, It's a nice day today. Yes. Well, we've got another exciting episode for our listeners. We've got another interview. You and I have to do an episode by ourselves one of these days, you know? I know. We keep saying that. We keep saying saying that, but we keep getting good guests. So (laughs) Sharon reached out to us and sent us our story. And you and I both read it. And we thought that is, it's super fascinating. It's interesting. It's maybe a little bit different than the high earner, straight to fi type path. And that's part of what this podcast is about is exploring everybody's journey and getting to fi whenever they get to fi. So a uh, secondary also to that is that Sharon's from Atlantic Canada, which is awesome to have somebody else from that side of the country as well. So we're, we're getting around. We're going to have to start making a list of the provinces <laughs> we haven't hit and do a reach out for some of those. But uh, yeah, what do you think, Chrissy? I'm excited to talk to Sharon. I- I shouldn't say excited, but I I really want to share a story like hers because uh, she emailed us and said, I don't think you've spoken to someone like me. And I think this story needs to be told. And a big part of her story is that she came from a life of adversity uh, growing up. And that's really shaped how her financial future went. And um, I'd love for you to start us off on your story, Sharon, and tell us uh, where life started and, and how it was so difficult for you. Hi, thank you for having me. You're welcome. We're happy you're here. Great to have you here. Thank you. Um, yeah, I grew up in a, a town in eastern Canada, and um, I was an only child. My father was the, the main breadwinner in the home. My mother was a housewife, like a lot of people were of their generation. They were born in the 30s. My father, back then, you could get a good job. Uh, by not going to university. Uh, My father, I think, had grade five education. He was the oldest of, I think it was 14 children. Wow. I I still don't know any of them. So I think it's 14. (laughs) Wow. And um, he had to quit school early to take care of the the siblings, the younger children. And um, I guess when he, I don't know what age he turned, but he was an adult and he got... uh, hired by the power company in the province. And he became a power engineer with grade five education. They trained him on the job, he did courses, and he worked with them for, I think, 31 years. And it's funny because I have a cousin now whose husband has a master's degree in engineering he was working at the same company and actually got laid off a few years ago. Oh, no. <laughs> so times have changed. So, uh, yeah, my father was a power engineer at the power company, which was a pretty good job back then. And my mother was a housewife, very traditional. Uh, she, she grew up in a family of 10. And um, I was an only child. Unfortunately, uh, my father was an alcoholic. And my mother was a 
a good Christian woman, Catholic woman, who didn't believe in divorce at the time. And she was fully reliant on him for financial support. So I was a bit of a, a rebel when I was young, and um, it was hard living in that kind of environment. So as I became a teenager, I caused so much trouble <laughs> that my mother was forced to move out with me <laughs> because I was causing such trouble in the household because I said, this is ridiculous, I can't live like this. Anyway, my mother did not have a job because she didn't really have any skills because she had been a homemaker for all those years. And uh, she had to go on what they call now government assistance, but back then it was called welfare. Mm -hmm. So myself and my mother were living in a bachelor apartment. She slept on a single bed, and I slept on the sofa in the room. So we did that for a couple of years um, until I went to university. I did go to university. Most of my friends were um, studying sciences or medicine. I didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do, but I just remember it was 1989, maybe, and the Winter Olympics were on, and I really liked the Russian hockey team. And I said, <laughs> okay, this is what I'm going to study. I'm going to study Russian literature and language. This is great. Jobs are guaranteed in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because back then, trade school was frowned upon. No one in my group of friends would dare go to be a hairstylist or study a two-year certificate program at the trade school. That would be shameful, especially in... I just want to yes. ask, um, why is that? Because especially in a small town, you would think that those are the kinds of jobs that most people have because they're often there aren't, there, there may be one big industry, but you, know, you would need services and things like that to support those people that work in these industries. So why is it that it'd be so frowned upon when you, I would think that a lot of people would work jobs like that. I think it was because it was just my immediate group of people. My friends were all very clever and, uh, you know, now they're doctors and lawyers mm -hmm. and chemists. And my mother's side of the family was very successful and uh, business people and not my father's side but my mother's side and and I was a f I didn't want to be looked down upon because I felt that they were I, I felt that my family was looked down upon because of what was happening so I didn't want them to look down on me further so I said I'm just going to go to university which looking back now <laughs> You know, when you're in your 40s, look back when you're 18, you say, oh, Lord. Anyway, so I went to university. <laughs> my father did pay for um, my university because it was very cheap. It was $500 a semester plus books. But my final year, I took out a student loan because I did not want to be seen as dependent on him. I didn't want, because uh, growing up, money was always a thing you'd hang, you, that would be held over the other person. Like, I make the money, you're living off my money. I didn't want to hear that. So I took out a student loan in my last year. So I borrowed $3,000 because I wanted to be independent. So after that, I graduated with a 
double major, actually, in English <laughs> literature and Russian language literature. <laughs> Just to make it even more useful. And um, I had part-time jobs. And in, in that province at the time, you would get temporary jobs that would last, you know, 10 weeks, eight weeks. And you would just try to work enough so you'd have enough weeks to get your unemployment. And mm. I think back then it was 19 weeks of work and you could get your unemployment. The economy was miserable back then. And the unemployment rate, I think, was 13%. Wow. And you had a university in, in the city. And just imagine all those students graduating every year when you mm. have an unemployment rate of 13%. So. Yeah. Anyway, I took off to Russia thinking, this is great. I'm just going to go to Russia. <laughs> and uh, I went to Russia three times or twice, actually. And um, every time I left home, unfortunately, my mother would then take that as an opportunity to move back home with my father. Mm. Because then I was out of the picture, so she didn't have to listen to me complaining. And she was a good Christian woman, so she'd move back. So um, my first trip to Russia, and I, I went back home and, and she had moved in with my father so I had to live there and I, I just said this is I just can't do this so uh, after I graduated I went back to Russia again for I think it was six months and uh, before that actually I had been at my university and they have a, a bulletin board with jobs posted I was desperately looking for a job that my wonderful skills would be useful for and um, I saw a job advertised, um, teach English in Japan. And uh, I knew nothing about Japan. I had no interest in Asia. I was only interested in Eastern Europe. <laughs> but unfortunately, Russia didn't have a lot of money to, to spend to pay people like me who didn't really speak the language very well but liked the literature. So I said, oh, Japan, this is interesting. Okay. And even I don't even know if there was Internet back then. That's how old I am. Um, it sounds <laughs> what unbelievable. What year was this? It was um, 1994 or 1995. Okay. I had spent two years still in the province just doing my little odd jobs that would last, you know, eight weeks to 12 weeks, whatever. Or even sometimes just Christmas, working at Walmart, stocking shelves at night. So I applied for this job to teach English in Japan. I was so shy. I had no siblings. <laughs> I didn't know how was I going to teach any anyone. But anyway, I applied because I was desperate. And then I went to Russia for six months. While I was in Russia, my mother actually called me and said, you have to go to Montreal to the Japanese embassy for an interview. I said, oh, my God, this is so exciting. So I left Russia, went back to my home got ready for this interview in montreal and it was it was so it was so weird like what japan and it, the interview went very weird because i, I just didn't know what i was doing like I, I didn't know what they wanted i didn't anyway so i i got the job wow that is quite the childhood i can definitely it, it resonates with me i remember some of those times i grew up with a single mom i was also encouraged to go to university and i totally know what you're talking about where all my friends were going to UBC and I, there's no way I could afford to go to UBC. And I went to the, I went to general studies at a local <laughs> Kwantlen college. So the same thing was like, what do you get? Yeah. A, what job do you get from general <laughs> studies? Yeah. 
And the trades stigma existed back then as well, but I was very lucky to be encouraged and I ended up in trades and I'm thankful that I did. It's interesting that in your story to us, you said if you could go back in time, you would have taken something in the trades. And we've talked about this on the show before, how you know there's many, many different paths that we all take, but the trades one will get you there as well. And, and I also really resonate with your story of, you know, the, the money being held over you and it was, you know, not under my roof type thing. And it was just a stressor that I, I feel that you and I both felt growing up that it's mm-hmm. interesting. I, I kind of, that you took it on your own to, to get that student loan and to start moving forward and, and adventuring overseas. I think that's super fantastic. Chrissy? Yeah. Uh, something I wanted to point out that you, um, emailed to us that you said, it, made me sad, but it kind of sums oh. up, you know, the childhood that you grew up with, how you said my mom did not have high aspirations for me as a woman. Mm-hmm. And for you to have grown up with that kind of attitude towards you as a woman and to turn around and change your life so completely from the way you grew up, I, how how did you do that? <laughs> I just find it amazing when people are able to change their circumstances completely from what they grew up with. I think I grew up very close to my mother, but watching her and how she lived her life, she, she taught me what not to do just by her mm. actions. The way she was living did not help her in any way. So I knew she was not the one to take advice from. She had a very, um, I'd say a very sheltered life. She was a housewife who would stay in the kitchen all day. And she really had no life, and and she wa- and I knew she wasn't one that I should sit and take life advice from. So I just went my own way. Well, I think it takes some personal insight to see that because not everyone does that. You know, some people just keep following the same patterns. Yeah, yeah. I I had to do something because nothing was going to change. Living where I was living in the city, there was no options for me. And there was no way I'd be able to move out because you'd never be able to get a job that would pay enough money. Mm. But before I I did go overseas, the one thing I did manage to do from my part-time jobs was pay off my student loan. So before I left, like I was so anti-debt, I said, oh my God, I owe $3,000. But that I just <laughs> paid it off and that was done. And um, I've, I've always been, I, I didn't have money, but when I did for my part-time jobs, I, I valued it. I, I always had that because my parents, they back then, they never had credit cards. They shared a car. They had a simple home. If they didn't have the money, they wouldn't buy anything. And and they had the same sofa. You know, the older generation, some of them, they have the same sofa set for forty five years in the same position in the living room. <laughs> you know yep. what I mean? So they were so. I, I don't want to say frugal. Because my mother was a chain smoker, so she spent <laughs> her money on cigarettes, and my father was an alcoholic, and he would buy a bottle of liquor every day. But that's the only thing they spent money on, and groceries. So, yeah. I mean, I didn't, and there was no such thing as cell phones and computers and things back then, so we didn't need anything. Yeah. Right? It was a different world. Different time. Yeah, I can relate. I'm I'm old enough to remember back then. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're probably the same generation. We are, definitely yeah. we are, yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's what, you know, I like about your stories because we're getting to the point now where you've taken the chance to become an expat and, and I can relate directly to that as well, being an expat myself. So it's amazing that you 
took a chance. You saw something on a bulletin board and you said, sure, why don't I go to Asia? <laughs> yeah, why <laughs> right. not? Right? I, I, I think that's awesome. So, okay, let's get back into the story where you, you'd sent, you'd gone to Montreal for this kind of strange interview at、mm. the Japanese embassy and you're <laughs> like, okay, sure, I guess what? So, what happens next? I just want to jump in before、yeah. we go into your story. You said something funny and I, I want to mention it. <laughs> so, before you left for Japan, you said, I still remember my aunt seeing me off at the airport saying, You will never last there. We will、yes. see you back here in two weeks. And、yeah. that's, that's what launched you into Japan. So, tell us how things went. Yes, because that was my mother's sister. So, that's the side of the family that were quite successful. And when she said that to me at the airport, And I was afraid I wouldn't last. Like, honestly, in my heart, I'm saying, oh my, what am I doing? But it was an exchange program. I was going with other people. So I said, okay, there'll be some support. But when she said that to me at the airport, in my mind, I'm like, there's no way in heck I'm coming back here now. Yeah. <laughs> there's no way. You're not going to、yeah. see me again for like 10 years. I'm going to prove、I'm, you wrong. <laughs> right? <laughs> Because、yeah. I'm very spidey like that. If you tell me I can't do it, it's like my, my, mother was, my mother even told me I can't go to university. She didn't think I could do it. So I said, well, you know what? I'm going to do it. It might be Russian literature, but I'll do it. I'm not going to be a medical doctor. But, I love you your、know. spunk. Right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the traits that all of us need to have a little bit of to join the FIRE movement or,、mm-hmm. to, or to set the goal for financial independence. You, you kind of have to have that. You know, don't do what everybody else does to get what、uh, you want done in the end. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.、Yeah. so, before I left for Japan, actually, a cousin of mine had a friend who was a financial planner. She was in her 20s, and I knew her. So, I, I went to see her and I said, Listen, I'm going to be going to Japan and I'm going to be making some money. I still didn't really know how much it was. <laughs> and I said, I, I guess I have to set up something. Anyway, I set up, I don't even know what kind of account it was right now. And then I, I set up pre authorized contributions. Anyway, it's a long story, but I did something before I left. I just did the right thing.、What. You, you had pre auth mutual funds set up and you didn't even know what you were doing. That's perfect. No, I didn't know. Because、like, uh, later I became a non resident, so I don't know how that worked. I just can't remember. It was so long ago. Yeah. So I left for Russia. For、uh, where did I go? Japan. Japan. <laughs> Japan. And I was scared to death. And it was 36 degrees and humid. And where I'm from, 20 degrees is a heat wave. So <laughs>、yeah. I remember my first week in my three meter by three meter apartment, and it was 36 degrees and there was no air conditioning.、Mm-hmm. And I, that day I had gone to the supermarket to buy groceries. It was the first time I went to the supermarket, and I needed sugar for my tea. And when I got home, And put it in my tea. I discovered it was a bag of salt instead、oh, of sugar.、No. <laughs> and I cried and I cried. <laughs> and I was so hot. And I said, Oh my Lord. Anyway, eight years later. So, no, it was,、um, it was wonderful. I was making good money. I was working in a high school, which was not, it wasn't really my cup of tea because the, the students were not really keen on learning English.、Mm. Right. They weren't paying money to learn English. They were forced to learn English. But I worked there for three years. I finished my whole three year contract. A lot of other、uh, foreign teachers stayed for a year or two, and maybe about 25% stayed the whole three years. So is it because they just didn't like the lifestyle or it was too challenging for them? And so they cut their contracts early? A lot of them, especially the men, foreign,、uh, not foreign men, but 
North American or British men found Japanese wives okay. and would bring them back to Canada. Oh. Or they were just done. They said, okay, I just did this for a year. That's all I wanted to do. But for me, I had a different, a different uh, opinion. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with this as long as I can. I guess you got used to Japan and living there and <laughs> being away from Canada. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, funny because Japan is uh, it's not anywhere I would think I want to be, but it, it, was, it was fabulous, the, the, the people. Um, I think I've heard before, and I, I really think that Canadians and Japanese are, are closer in character than Americans. Americans and Japanese are complete opposite. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but Canadians are a little bit more modest and quiet, and I think we do very well in Japan. Well, Chrissy's really jealous because I think that's mm -hmm. her ultimate goal. Is I know, to, I heard. Just, we were talking about where you'd live in the world, and you said Tokyo, Chrissy, and I was yes. surprised. But yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But you did more than just teach English there, didn't you? Uh, you did meet a lovely Japanese guy, you said. So yes. How did that kind of work out coming together in a foreign country? And how did the finances work for you as a couple? I met him at a party for English students, adult English students. He was invited to be my entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Yes. Your escort. Because <laughs> none of the students could speak English well enough. It was a, it was a class at the community center and most of the men were like middle-aged men who just wanted to get together in the hopes of meeting Japanese women. <laughs> okay. They were all single, but they were anyway. And none of them could speak very good English, so that's why hubby, my future hubby, was invited just to talk to me and keep me occupied for the night. <laughs> and he did that very well. And uh, that was in the first few months I was in Japan. And um, within a week, we knew we wanted to get married. Wow. And I never thought wow. someone from where I was from and a Japanese person would, would click. But it was unbelievable. So um, we wanted to get married immediately, but we couldn't because it would cause a bit of a scandal in the town. Mm. So I waited till I finished my contract and we moved to a bigger city and we got married. And, um, but while we were dating... Um, he was a smoker, and he quit cold turkey because I he wasn't allowed in my house with <laughs> cigarettes. He had a car loan. He had bought a very he was a you know single man. He had a car loan. I I gave him the money. I said here pay this off. He was spending ten dollars a day on lunch, and he stopped once he met me. You <laughs> <laughs> were a good uh, influence on him. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, he, he's a, a wonderful man, and I'm so happy I met him, and I'm glad he kind of had the same mindset as me, or he eventually, he learned to have the same mindset. He just didn't know how to handle money. He was, yep. I thought, he was working at the airport, and I said, wow, here's a, he seems like a, a very well-off Japanese man. This is wonderful. Wow, how lucky I am. And it was after a few dates, and we'd be going out whining and dining, well, you know, Izakaya. And I learned that he was making $1,300 a month, and yet he was driving this fancy car and smoking and buying his lunch every day. So that all changed. <laughs> I took over that anyway. <laughs> Good for you, I think. <laughs> I think a lot of us are like your husband, where not 
we're not bad with our money, but we're not optimized. And a lot of times we're kind of mindlessly going through life. So sometimes it, it doesn't take a lot for someone to come along and teach you the ropes and steer you in a better direction. And then you slowly wake up and mm -hmm. it sounds like that's what you did for him. I think so. And when we moved to the uh, bigger city and finally started life together, we then had a goal. The goal was eventually to move back to Canada. Um, he had a dream. He wanted to be a Canadian lumberjack. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Nice. Yes. Plaid shirt and all, I can yes. see it. Because <laughs> that was his image of Canada. For some reason, he imagined <laughs> so lumberjacks, <laughs> with, you know, the men with the beards and very manly and stuff. And I didn't know if there were lumberjacks. I think I actually Googled it. I think back then <laughs> there was internet then. And I Googled Canadian lumberjacks because I didn't know if... Is this like the beachcombers? I have no idea. <laughs> so eventually then he decided on carpentry. He wanted to be a carpenter. And uh, he started studying um, on his own in Japan. And um, we were both working. And uh, I was teaching at a language school for adults and children who were actually paying money to learn English. So it was people who wanted to learn, mm -hmm. and it was fabulous. Um, mm -hmm. I eventually got promoted to head teacher, and I had students on the side on the on my days off. So this was outside the JET program. You finished yeah, yeah. the JET program, and yeah. now you're private. You're finding jobs on your own. Yeah, and it, it was so easy, and you get paid well just to sometimes just to sit and share recipes in English. Mm -hmm. um, and hubby had a a pretty good job and, and we had a, a wall chart and every five thousand dollars that we saved we'd color in a little line on the wall chart you know until we reach a certain number because every time we would think okay this is our goal but then we'd meet that goal then we'd have to make a new wall chart and then we'd do that one <laughs> and we do so we kept That's going amazing. and i was saving all my salary because it's amazing how much you save actually when you're renting. We were mm -hmm. renting. Mm -hmm. You're there temporarily. You're not going to buy fancy furniture. You're not going to paint. Mm -hmm. We had no pets. We had one car. I would take public transport. When I think about how cheaply you can live, I mean, it, it's cheaper. How we were living in Japan is much cheaper than how we're living in Canada, unfortunately, because Canada's quite expensive. And Japan is supposed to be expensive, but actually, I don't think it is. I guess you were not living in Tokyo because I've heard now, nowadays, rental rates in Tokyo are very high. Um, it's very hard, hard to find an affordable apartment there. Uh, so I guess you're living outside of the big, big city. Oh, yeah, I was up north and my first okay. apartment, which was three meters by three meters. Think about that, though. Yeah. Three meters by three meters. I was paying about $300 a month. Wow. But but I heard from other teachers at my school that that was actually a low income oh, apartment okay. that they had put me in, and they didn't know why I was in there. But I, I stayed there. I think I was there a year, and then luckily I I met hubby and he could find me a new place because I just I couldn't. Okay. Even though it was three hundred dollars, I'm sorry, I couldn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? that's that's really small. Now, yeah. how old were the two of you at this point when he started carpentry school and you started this new? Uh, private teaching job. Oh, were you in like early twenties? Would you say? No, because when I went Japan to Japan, I was actually twenty-two. Okay. So maybe twenty-six, twenty-five, okay. twenty-six. Okay. Or twenty-seven. Okay. So you were doing an <laughs> awesome job at that age, 
putting that much money away. And one of the things is living overseas like that gives you that opportunity if you can keep your living costs down, that you're stacking away that salary. That was fantastic. Good for you. Well, every month I go to the bank machine and shove in all this, this, this pile of bills into the machine because we got paid in cash. So <laughs> hubby would get paid in cash. I get paid in cash. And then I had my side job that I get paid in cash. So sometimes we'd come home and we'd have like three envelopes full of money. And I remember one night we just sat on the floor, we took out all the money and threw it into the air and just let it flutter down. Make it rain. (laughs) Make it rain. It was just like, oh my God, this is wonderful. So I was sending money home. And like I said, at one point I became a non-resident because I had cut ties in Canada. But I was still sending money home. I'm not sure what I was doing with it at this time. I did find statements the other day, and I think my financial advisor had me in treasury bills. Oh, oh boy. Like oh, at, no. At, at GICs. Or, I don't even remember now. But So I was sending home all this money, and my mother was, was kind of at the other end checking my bank book. There was bank books back then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she got my statements in the mail. And I guess one month the markets had dropped and my mother called me in a panic screaming you're going to go bankrupt you're going to go bankrupt because i guess <laughs> the number had dropped from the previous quarter and she had never invested money before she never had invested in any shape or form she yeah. had a bank account her whole life and she thought i was going to go bankrupt so that's why i don't take advice from her or i didn't <laughs> right and i said don't worry everything's fine And, um, yeah, we stayed in Japan. I stayed in Japan a total of eight years. And, um, at that point we're early thirties and I figured at some point we have to return to Canada. If we're going to go back to Canada, we better do it sooner than later because I didn't have a lot of Canadian work experience. My husband didn't have well, he, he had work experience in Japan, but I didn't really know what was he going to do in Canada. He's going to be a lumberjack. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, let's. I'm excited to hear about the return to Canada part of your story. Chrissy, let's take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor, and then we'll hear the rest of Sharon's story about back to Canada. Have you ever listened to a podcast with great content but terrible audio? I know I have, and I've bailed on shows because it's too painful to listen. If you're a podcaster, you need to nail your audio. But if you're like me and have no idea how to do that, I know someone who can help. Max from Fix Audio is Explorify Canada's official editor and mixer. But I also like to call him my personal podcasting instructor. With Max's help, I've effortlessly and affordably improved my audio and podcasting. Now, just so you know, Fix Audio isn't your run-of-the-mill podcast production house. Instead, Max provides white glove treatment with hands-on personalized service. If you're ready to take your podcast to the next level, reach out to Max at Fix Audio. That's F-I-X-A-U-D dot I-O. Okay, we're back and we are still talking to Sharon about her journey to Japan and now um, her journey back to Canada. So before we talk about the Canadian years, I, I want to know, why did you decide to go back to Canada? Things sound like they're going well in Japan. You're earning good money. You're happy with your jobs. Uh, what what was the motivation to come back to Canada, other than your husband wanting to become a lumberjack? I think that life in Japan is fabulous for a foreigner. 
we're giving a we're given a lot of leeway. Mm-hmm. You know, we're foreign, so they excuse a lot of things. Okay, we're not we don't stay at work at night. They forgive that because we're foreign. We don't know better. <laughs> <laughs> but Japanese people do not have an easy life.、Um, my husband would work, I think, six days a week.、Uh, one night he called me eleven o'clock. One night after working all day, he called me from the the toilet cubicle, and he was whispering into the phone. He said, "I can't stand this anymore.、Aww. I had to hide in the bathroom because." We're not allowed to leave because the senpai, the senior boss, did not finish his job. I've heard this. So everyone had to yeah, stay. Yeah, even though yeah. you have no work to do, you have、yes. to hang around first to show your yes. face. That's yes. all. And you have to. You, you, it's better if you pretend you're doing something.、Oh, you don't look idle. You have to pretend. I mean, I remember when I was at at the school, the teacher w- was at her desk. With her head down, with the pen in her hand, I said, "Wow, she's working so hard," and she was snoring. <laughs> and it, 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 it's just funny. And so, for Japanese people, like that, we didn't travel. Like I was just saying to Hubby today, I said, "You know, we lived in Japan eight years, and we only went to Hong Kong once, <laughs> and back to Canada once, because Japanese people can't take holidays. No, they work six days a week, right? We hosted Japanese students and." They told us how difficult it is to take holidays. You get maybe two, three days off a year, yeah,、uh, or you might get two weeks off altogether. But you can never take them all at once. No, you can only take a few days at a time. So companies say, "Oh yeah, we give our our employees holidays, but either they can't be used, or employees." You, it's not the individual. The individual is is not important. It's the betterment of the group. So if you take a holiday. You are showing you are selfish and you don't care about the group.、Mm-hmm. So hubby could not stand that anymore. I didn't. I mean, I was fine. <laughs> I was having a grand <laughs> yes, time. But but for him, I said no. He 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 had also studied in Los Angeles when he was a university student. So he had lived in the United States、mm-hmm. for a few years. So he knew what North American life could be. So we had decided to come back to Canada. Yeah, makes that、sense. makes sense.、Mm-hmm. Now, with all this money you were making in Japan before you came back to Canada, did you have a? You said you had investments in Canada before. Sounded like you were being pretty frugal in Japan. Had a good plan there. What did you do with money? How did you learn about your personal finance journey? Because from what you just described about working there, it sounds like you guys, if you'd known about the fire journey back then, you would、mm-hmm. have started then、mm-hmm. and there, right?、Mm-hmm. But you didn't. But you learned、mm-hmm. about personal finance. So just、yeah. tell us a little bit about that and the transition back to Canada. Well,、um, because I was making a lot of money and investing, and I decided I better learn something about what I was doing.、Mm-hmm. So I just ordered. I guess I ordered from Amazon in United States, and they shipped all the books to me. And I had a bookshelf full of personal finance books. Unfortunately, a lot of them were American. Right. And、uh, but one of the books I read was by a lady in British Columbia. Okay. And I think you guys are from British Columbia. Yes. We are. Yep.、Mm-hmm. Diane Naherny. Oh, oh. And, I've never heard of her. And she wrote a book, "Get Rich, Retire Early," or something. She had retired at the age of thirty-six because she had a rental property. Wow. So I, she had like one rental property. It was, and and I read this book, 
And I said, oh my God, we're, we're, we should do this. She retired at 36. And then later we realized, okay, we don't want to do the rental property route. So therefore we can't retire early because <laughs> no one was talking <laughs> about it. People yeah. were just talking about the normal, you work until you're 65 mm -hmm. and that's it. So yeah. I said, unless you have a rental property, you can't do this. So, okay, we're out of luck. So let's just carry on. Yeah. So how did it look when you got back to Canada after learning all about this personal finance and getting more involved and understanding more about it? Well, the funny thing is I shipped back all those personal finance books. I spent a fortune for shipping. <laughs> and um, now we had been to Canada the year before looking. Uh, we were at a family reunion and we looked at houses in uh, Nova Scotia and then Two years later, once we finished in Japan, after Hubby got his visa, we moved back to Nova Scotia and the house prices had gone up so much that it was com like we couldn't catch up because we were, we were staying in Japan longer so we could buy a house. But then the longer we stayed, the house prices would increase in mm. Canada. So we couldn't yep. catch up. You know what I mean? So, um, we didn't want any debt. We didn't want to rent. So we actually stayed in the university dormitory in Halifax for a month. And then we stayed for another month with my aunt. And then she basically kicked us out. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to say to her, see, I told you I'd stay there <laughs> yes, for longer than... Yes. <laughs> and we ended up, we wanted to buy a house with cash. And we did. Good for you. But unfortunately, the house prices had gone up so much that the house that we could buy was not really, eh. it was in a, a, a subdivision, cookie cutter subdivision with houses about three feet apart. In Atlantic Canada, this is not, it's not Toronto. Mm -hmm. We usually have more space here, you know what I mean? And it was a, a neighborhood with tons of children and we weren't children people. <laughs> so um, we bought two cars and the house. We lasted eight months and sold and bought another house. Wow. And then I realized we shouldn't have all our money sitting in the house. So we borrowed from the house, we leveraged our equity, and we invested it. And I guess I should mention that while I was in Japan also, I studied for my, uh, I studied investment courses from the Institute of Canadian Bankers, so that when I, I came home, I'd actually have some marketable skills or knowledge. So I got a job with an investment company, not as a consultant, of course, just as an assistant to a financial consultant, because I was really interested in the industry. And that's the only thing I thought I wanted to do was work in, in the investment field. So how did that help you with your investing journey when you said you were able to, you chose to leverage your house, which is uh, a big deal for a lot of people, even even in the FI community where they're comfortable with their finances and investing? It's still a big question. Do you think your education, learning about the investment funds and then working for a broker gave you the confidence to be able to do that? Well, um, I worked for 16 years with an investment company. Um, I started off investing in mutual funds. It was only when I did my own research that I discovered stocks and ETFs a few years ago. I learned a lot. I learned more about investor behavior oh, through yeah. my job. We had a lot of clients who were pretty sure they were aggressive investors when the market was going up. <laughs> and no matter how many times you tell them and you, you give them the know your client quizzes to see what their risk tolerance is, they were sure they were aggressive because the markets had been going up. The minute the markets dropped, 
they would be the first to call and say, sell everything to cash. Right. So I learned a lot about, I learned more about investment behavior or investor behavior. The focus with most investment firms at the time was on mutual funds. I myself was invested in them and I didn't even, at that time I said, oh, the MER was over 2.5. I think it was 2.7. Wow. And at yep. the time I said, oh, 2.7. That sounds okay. It, it was, it was normal for that. For right. Back then. Yeah. It was normal. 2.7. Yeah. So we had some clients who had been clients for 20 years. And every now and then we'll call up. They say, I got my statement. I don't think I've made any money for 20 years. And then I found that in the investment business, a lot of it is trying to convince people not to transfer out their money. And um, I think the investment advisors I worked for were all great people who did their best to help clients with, you know, insurance planning, tax planning, estate planning. Um, they would offer the best investments they could, but because you had to offer what the company was selling, it was 2.7 MER funds. Right. So it was hard to have a fiduciary duty when you're handcuffed by what you have to sell. Yeah. And, and I never, never met a, a sneaky financial advisor. All of them worked hard. They had, they gave out their cell phone number to clients who would call them on the weekend. But it just got to me after 16 years, and I had already started investing in stocks. It just really brought me down, especially last year when COVID hit. And clients were, the first day of the lockdown here in Nova Scotia, we had clients calling up saying they wanted to defer their mortgage payments. Like literally day one. Mm -hmm. um, people were not prepared. I don't have an emergency fund, so I shouldn't speak, but I mean... We didn't have a mortgage. So if anything happened, we were, you know, we didn't have any huge bills. But I, I just, it got very depressing. And I felt that people really need to educate themselves on money. You know, we had people who we had to do consolidation loans for because they never, ever learned how to use a credit card. Yep. Um, young people. And I don't know. It, it just got very depressing. And I, I, thought to myself, I, I need to work another two years before I'm financially free. And I said, if I can hold on another two years, but then last year we started working from home. Everything went digital. There was so much compliance in the investment industry now. You need to have your T's crossed, your I's dotted. You have to have everything in writing that the client understands every point and it just became overwhelming the amount of, and then clients come back and say, oh, I didn't understand it. And then mm -hmm. they'll file a complaint. So anyway, I, uh, my work was affected and, uh, I ended up losing my job in October. But as I was sitting there with my boss and I could see, she was talking to me and I could see where the conversation was going. My mind, it was like slow motion. My mind, I looked up into the, into my mind. And I said, oh, we have this much money in investments. I guess that's what they call FU money. <laughs> and when she said, today is your last day, in my mind, I said, thank God. Yay! <laughs> because I would have never quit. Yeah. Because it was a decent pay paying job. When I was in the office, I was enjoying it somewhat. But working from home, 
and all the compliance and the clients, the same clients complaining and da da da, and not willing to do anything to help themselves, right? Or not knowledgeable enough to. I just was done. Yeah, I was done. So here I am. I love that. <laughs> you've said you've told your story in COVID, but a couple of our other guests have also mentioned this. Actually, we've had three guests now that have changed their course. It, in the pandemic. And it's not what you expect. A lot of these people, they had a good position or they lost their positions, but whatever the case, they're happy and they're okay because of the path they've been on. But why do you think, for example, in Nova Scotia now, the house prices increased 30% in the last year and people from Ontario are moving here. Please don't move here, Ontario people, because our dream was to have a hobby farm. We were going to sell our house. We have a, a house that's, I'd say, we're not, we're frugal, but we, we do spend money on things that we enjoy or we, we value. We're living on the water. In this market now with Ontario folks coming here, we could have sold our house for a good penny, and Hubby even suggested we do that. But then all the rural properties that were selling for 100000 two years ago, some of them are going for four times the price, or three yep. times, I shouldn't. And now we were, that was our retirement, one of our retirement plans was to sell this house, which we could get, just say $400,000 for, which we could. And we were going to move rural and maybe get a house for two hundred. But now they're selling for more. It's interesting when you, you mentioned that. I mean, we've seen that over here on this side of the country as well. Yeah. And lots of us have geo-arbitrage plans yeah. in the FI journey. And mm -hmm. it's interesting when you're kind of going, well, my geo-arbitrage isn't that much of an arbitrage anymore because prices have been driven up because people are trying to ex exit the cities where, you know, 10 years before we saw everybody fleeing to the big cities. So, you know, these trends happen, they come and go, and who knows what the, the future will bring. Why do you think COVID triggered that, though? It seems that since COVID happened, everyone wants a hobby farm. Everyone wants to move to somewhere else in Canada, to the East Coast. I think it's the remote working. Remote I mean, working. I, yeah. I know you didn't enjoy it, but I think for a lot of people, yeah. it works for their lifestyle. And yeah. I know at my husband's company, a lot of people are like, maybe I can move to Kelowna or something and work from there, where yeah. that wasn't a possibility before. You had to be oh, in the true. city within driving distance yeah. to the company. Yeah. But now it untethers people and it gives them yeah. opportunities like you, like you yeah. wanted to live out the life that they wanted, which is yeah. maybe a hobby farm. Yeah. Just letting upper Canadians know that uh, Nova Scotia has really bad internet in rural <laughs> communities. A lot of places are on dial-up. So if, oh, you're no. hoping, if you're hoping to work remotely, please ask the real estate agent if there's dial-up internet first, or you oh, could be gosh. in big trouble. Well, you might not even get dial-up. Wow. <laughs> Too funny. Too funny. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you've got your sort of FI plan all sorted out. And it was an interesting story to hear that coming from a challenging childhood to working overseas and capitalizing on that experience and that income, that you could parlay that back into careers for both of you in Canada. I like, I like the story because a lot of us, and I've said this in the past because I've been an expat as well, that there's opportunity to work overseas and kind of turbocharge your FI journey or get it kicked off because mm -hmm. you build a really great foundation by doing mm -hmm. something like that. 
Mm-hmm. Do you see that as one of the important parts of your journey so far is, is laying that foundation work once by being overseas? Oh, definitely. Because um, when we moved into our second house, it was in a, a very fancy neighborhood, but we bought the, the smallest house on the street. Our neighbor, we became friendly with our neighbor who was a teacher or elementary school principal. And she came to our house one time and she said, you're so lucky to have two incomes. She was a single woman. And I said, well, I'm making $12 an hour, and hubby is making, I think, $25,000 a year. And her mouth just dropped. And she was, I think, at the time making 80000 or something. But she was sure, because we were living there, and it's a cute house in a nice neighborhood, that we must be, well, when you have two people, you have double the, double the cost, right? We had two cars. But I do believe that if we had started out just living in Canada, making that money, we'd never get out of the hole. There's no way to establish yourself if you're making 20-something thousand dollars a year. doesn't matter how frugal you are. You can batch cook all day long, and it's not going <laughs> to get you to fi. So I yeah. thank God every, not every day, but a few times a week at supper over wine, I say, hubby, thank you to your country. <laughs> we did not squander that chance. And we saved, for five years, I saved my income. And it was just, I just wish that I had invested it better at that time, but I don't know, I, did, I wasn't sure since I was a non-resident. Now, I think like you, Money Mechanic, I'm doing the hybrid way, yeah. you know, stocks and ETFs. Um, yeah. I started with dividend stocks, but then I realized I really should diversify into the US, but I didn't want to buy individual funds. So I started ETF investing uh, for the U.S. I'm still not sure. I'm still researching. There's two two ways of thinking about it. Is dividend growth the way to go or is ETF investing the way to go? Well, well, that's a whole other podcast if we get into (laughs) dividend growth investing or total market returns. And Christy will have a position on that too. So we won't get too deep into that at this point. No, (laughs) no. So I just wish that if 15 years ago or maybe 20 years ago, if I had known more, I would have been further ahead. But, you know. Yeah, and that's the motivation for people listening to this show is, like we always say, is just get started. And, right. And uh, you can make changes along the way. So one point I would like our audience to really hear from you, because uh, like we said, your story is not the typical FI story. You mentioned before we started recording how much your maximum annual salary has, has been in your life. I, I'd like you to share that with our audience so that they know it. you don't have to be a highly paid uh, tech person or a doctor to achieve FI. Yeah, sometimes when I'm listening to the podcast, I feel a lot of the people who are interviewed are making over $100,000 a year. Sometimes a couple is making 200000 My husband came here and the first job he got was sanding furniture at an antique store. Actually, he was making $8 an hour then, which I guess was the minimum wage. I was unemployed, actually. He got a job quicker than me. <laughs> And then, actually, he became a, a Red Seal carpenter. He, just quickly, he, he had a full-time job. They hired him. He learned carpentry on the job. He studied with the community college online and got his Red Seal carpentry journeyman certificate while studying online while working full-time. And he got a grant at the end. So, actually, he was paid to get his Red Seal carpentry so technically, he didn't have to, he, he just worked and studied at the same time. 
and I was making, I started off making 20 something thousand as an assistant to a financial planner, which is basically an office worker, dealing with clients though. And um, the most I ever made was 38,000. He's doing better than me now, of course. He's making about 60. But if you have the foundation, if you have a chance, if any people out there have kids who are university age, and they have the opportunity to go, I'd say to Japan to teach English or Korea, I would do it. Because you come home with money and you can start your life in a positive. Like, imagine if you're making $8 an hour, you need to get an apartment, get a car, furnish your apartment, you'll never get ahead. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> but the foundation is so important. And that, and right now, I should say that I've not been working since October. I'm going to have to start looking for a job soon. But, uh, you know, Hubby does some side hustles. He, he actually played a Japanese hotel clerk on a Canadian TV show. <laughs> Do you know right? the TV show Mr. D? I've heard uh, of it. I've heard of it on CBC. He's a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. He was a teacher. Okay. And they were actually looking for a Japanese person. And it had to be Japanese, not Chinese or Korean. Yeah. Well, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and he he was a Japanese capsule hotel front desk clerk, <laughs> and I he hope... made a thousand dollars. Good for wow. him. I hope he got to wear plaid. <laughs> 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 so well, there's so many th when when you have that foundation, you know. Even though we weren't making tons of money, and I spent a lot of money on on pets and other things, you know, here I am. I'm not working, but we're doing okay. And when I was laid off, I didn't stress about it. It was actually a relief. And now I'm just, my biggest problem is what am I going to do next? Like, what would I enjoy doing? So that's the, that's the switch from the scarcity mindset from yeah. your youth to the abundance mindset because yeah. you built the foundation and you are where you are now. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So you mentioned also to us that you would love for your parents to see where you're at now and... I think that's a lovely way to end the story, how you know, mm. you've know you come so far from where you came from and yeah. your parents would be proud of you. They'd be amazed Like you went against everything mm -hmm. that they stood for and everything that you were told so many negative things in your yeah. childhood. And yet you overcame all that and look at you now. Yeah, unfortunately, my father passed away about 10 years ago and I had to rush back home for that. And then when I went back, actually, I realized my mother was suffering from dementia, but she had hidden it quite well over the phone. So um, I guess the last 10 years, my mother passed away last year, actually, but uh, so they didn't really get to see the results, but they did know I was back in Canada with hubby and we were, we were fine and not asking for money. Because I think they always expected me to be asking for money. My father offered me money for new windows. I said, no, I'm fine. I really don't need money. But they just... They, they just didn't think I'd ever be independent. So I, I think they would be proud. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. So you're, eventually you'll, you'll reach FI. What, what is the plan? Will you be earlier than retirement age or will you be hitting sort of a more traditional retirement? Uh, it depends what kind of job I can find now. I don't know if I should look for something part-time that I enjoy that pays very little or if I should try to find a job that I might not enjoy, but that would pay more. <laughs> That's my issue. And uh, definitely within five years. 
wow. depending on the stock market. <laughs> if, yeah. if we could include uh, the equity in our house, we'd be there already, but mm-hmm. not including the equity in our house, I'd say three to five years. Fantastic. That's impressive. Yeah. Very good. Right. And, uh, you know, Hubby's just planning on doing woodworking and trying to sell the things he makes. And uh, I have plans as well. So we're, we, it would, we're believers in FI and not fire. Yes. And yes. I think when you have skill sets that you've built up in over yes. a lifetime, that mm-hmm. it just kind of comes naturally to do things like that anyway. I, I, I'm handy. I like doing woodwork type stuff. I mm-hmm. don't think anybody's going to pay me for it yet, but eventually, right? <laughs> you know, eventually it might. And, and you can just earn a little bit of money that uh, helps support that, the lifestyle mm-hmm. that you have and not rely wholly on drawing down your investment portfolio. So yeah, sounds like you've got a plan in place and uh, you sound, yeah. you've got a beautiful place by the lake. So maybe just yes. hold off on the hobby farm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. No, we're doing quite well and we're very lucky. And, uh, and I just wish I had found the fire or the FI movement earlier, but oh well. I think we all do. Yeah, <laughs> thank we all wish we did. Yeah. Thank you. And I really enjoy your podcast. Well, oh, thanks so thank much. You. It's both, been both a, your podcast. Thank you. Thank you very mm. much. It's mm. been a pleasure having you on the show. This is all part of it is sharing these stories from around mm. Canada. Chrissy, I, I was fascinated. I, I, you know, resonated with some parts of this in my own life. And uh, it's never too late for people that are listening to this. And also, as Sharon said, it's never too young to get started. So thanks again for being with us, Sharon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've been getting value from our content, please support us in the following ways. Leave us a review and subscribe in your favorite podcast player. Tell your friends and family about us or use our referral links at explorifycanada.ca forward slash recommendations. All of our show notes can be found at exploreficanada.ca. You can also find us on our other websites, figarage.ca or eatsleepbreathefi.com. Our show is edited and mixed by Max Desmarais at Fix Audio. That's fixaud.io. Episode transcripts were created in otter.ai.